we would like to begin this podcast by acknowledging that the land on which we record is the occupied, traditional, and unceded territory of the Stalo First Nation. Even yesterday, as I was walking these, these kids around, we do what we call a beauty walk or a tour of beauty where we walk people around the neighborhood and I just show them all the beautiful people and beautiful places because because in our neighborhood, uh, it's easy to see that which is hard and sorrowful and painful and, and those things are real. But if you don't see the beauty, then you don't want to fight for it. You just want to wipe it off the map. Welcome to the Ending Poverty Together podcast. I'm Shalane, and we're here to discuss big questions about poverty in bite-sized ways. Aaron White has been a pastor, missioner, justice worker, and prayer instigator in the downtown east side of Vancouver for the past 19 years, where he lives with his wife and four children in a community home. He teaches at Westminster Theological Center, co-hosts the Two Wise Fools podcast, is the co-author of Revolution and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Kingdom of God, co-creator of the Creative Way Down Discipleship Resource, and author of Recovering from Brokenness and Addiction to Blessedness and Community. Aaron, it's a privilege to have you here joining me today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Uh, It's good to be here. I'm excited about the conversation that we're going to have and want to just jump right in and have you start by finishing the sentence of the season— Poverty is complex because. Poverty is complex because we don't even have an agreed upon definition of what poverty is. Depending on where you go in the world and who you're talking to, there will be different definitions and understandings of of what poverty even is, let alone uh, what its source is, where it comes from. So we can't even get to the idea of how do we end it if we don't even know how did it come about. And so there's quite a few um, ideologies, quite a few lenses that people look at poverty uh, in ways that are to varying levels self-justifying, I think, um, that, that kind of protect us from the fear of what poverty is the fear of feeling like we have any kind of uh, association with it or any kind of um, responsibility towards it. Um, and then right. just very well-meaning people who have different ideas of where it comes from. And and when you have a very set-in-stone idea of where it comes from, particularly if it's a single story or a single source notion, it becomes very difficult to even have the conversation. So if you're if you have the belief that poverty comes from here and that's just it, and someone says, well, what if it's more complex than that? What if there is a multitude of factors that leads to uh, this inequality, this this uh, contrast in how people are living? That feels threatening to the story that you're holding about why the world is the way it is, why reality is the way right. that it is. So it's in- inordinately complex. I was walking around with some students yesterday in the downtown east side, and one of the fascinating things about the downtown east side is you can walk through the area of Maine and Hastings, which is one of the poorest postal codes in Canada, really in North America, um, some of the highest intravenous drug usage uh, in the Western world. 
um, levels of poverty that people just do not wish to look at. Um, and if you go two blocks north, you end up in Gastown, which right. is the um, tourist trap of Vancouver. It's where all the cruise ships empty out into. It's where people want to be. Uh, right. but, but you go two blocks south and there is this really desperate level of poverty. And we were t- I was talking with the students about that contrast being something that lends a particular horror to poverty. Because if, if everybody in an area has the same level of struggle and, and poverty, it's one thing. It's difficult, but it's one thing. But if you can see two blocks uh, north, people are living in, in luxury. That makes it even more difficult. And so that, that lends a new aspect to the definition of poverty that might be different in other places. So that's why ending poverty is so complex, because it really boils, right. yes, it's, it's a systemic issue, 100%, uh-huh. but it's also an individual issue. And it feels like there are a number of taboos, things that, depending on who you're talking to, you can't talk about. Right. right? So if you're talking to some people and you say, this is an individual issue, they'll go, no, now you're just poverty blaming, you know, you're victim blaming, it's a systemic issue. But it's not just a systemic issue. But if you're talking to yeah. other people and you say, look, there are systems that are keeping people really in oppression and there's and really in, in a desperate level of poverty, they go, no, 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 they're just not pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. They're just not taking advantage of the things that are available. And there's actually truth in some way to both of those things, but they're not single stories. So there cannot be a single story of how to end poverty. And that's why it's so complex. Right. Yeah. Aaron, you mentioned, I was actually going to ask you to describe some of the downtown east side in Vancouver, the, some of the dynamics, and you you beat me to it. Uh, you and your wife choose to live in the downtown east side. Mm-hmm. That's a significant um, lifestyle commitment. And I'm curious if you would be willing to share some of that journey because that's not an area that a lot of people choose to live in. No, I mean, a lot of people who are in the downtown east side end up in the downtown east side. They don't mm-hmm. choose to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, we chose to be here like many missionary types. We chose to be here with the idea that we were going to bring Jesus to the poor and then were somewhat distressed to discover that Jesus was already here. So now what do you do? And right. uh, we we made the decision to come to the downtown east side. We were living in Ontario. I grew up in Vancouver and I had done work in the downtown east side before um, mm-hmm. in, in shelters with the Salvation Army. So I was somewhat familiar with it. And my grandmother had been working in the downtown east side for many years and, and I knew about it. Um, but we were living in Ontario and we were trying to just, it was kind of a life season change. And we had a couple options in front of us. One was coming to the downtown east side to become part of a, a faith community down here. And we didn't know quite how to make the decision. We were praying about it. And then uh, my wife told me that she was pregnant with our third child. And we both, without even discussing it, just knew that meant we were to come to the downtown east side, which sounds like a crazy thing. Like, okay, so we're going to have another child. Well, it's time to relocate into a place that is known for its poverty and its, its drug use and 
mental health issues mm-hmm. and prostitution and so on. But it made so much it's sense to us. It's not a common us. story. Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it did make so much sense to us, though, especially once we arrived, because we, we really latched on to this um, promise in Scripture that says that the Lord will set the lonely in families. And, and at first, we really lived into this notion that if the Lord is going to set the lonely in families, then there had better be families there. And right. so we and, and other families were moving in. But over the years, one of the things we've discovered is that, the, and this is one of the causes, I think, of poverty, um, that our Western and even our Christian notion of what family is, is in, mm. incredibly impoverished and impoverishing. So if we right. think that family is this nuclear family setup, and God might set some lonely people within that, but then the goal is really for them to set up their own little nuclear family units. I think that that is one of the big causes of poverty and an impoverishment, right. and not just of people in the downtown east side, but of our whole society. Because uh-huh. family, biblically, is not restricted in any way to just your blood kin. In fact, it's uh-huh. quite the opposite of that particularly in the New Testament, where when they talk about family, when they talk about what the kingdom of God is going to look like, it's every tribe, nation, and tongue coming together. It's a whole new social engagement, social reality, and it's a political reality. It's an economic reality. And so being here in, in this neighborhood, I often describe it as the only place in Vancouver that I would really feel comfortable raising my children. Because people think it's a really dangerous place for kids. And there are certain dangers, yes. But I said I would be terrified raising them near a mall. You know, here, when they look around, they don't go, well, you know, crack cocaine is great. You know, that that's right. that's not in their mindset because they've seen what it does to people. Yes. But they've also seen people come in, into our home and detox on our couch. And they've seen people who have become quit of drugs and and so on. So they've seen both those things. And my children have grown up knowing if you see someone who looks, you know, you're not sure if they're alive or dead, you must stop mm-hmm. and check. You know, that's a level wow. of empathy and compassion that they have learned in this place that they may not have mm-hmm. learned, they probably would not have learned elsewhere. No, probably so, not. I mean, but if we're talking about, you know, the downtown east side, this, this relates to the theme of, of where does poverty come from? The downtown east side is a socially constructed scenario that that is buoyed up by a, a thousands and thousands of individual decisions. So it exists, and this is often a question I get, Why, even as I was walking the students around yesterday, why is this like this? Right. And there's a series of things that happened that, uh, particularly in the 80s, a place called Riverview, which is a, a mental hospital, in Coquitlam mm, right. was shut down. It was really yeah. a horribly run place. It, it, it did horrible things and it was shut down, but there was nothing to replace it. So we ended up with a number of people with significant mental health issues, um, just with no place to go and no real support. At the same right. time, we also had a whole flood of very, very pure heroin coming into places around the world, particularly the downtown east side because of wars in Afghanistan where poppy has grown. That's another thing. At the same time, the federal government had closed its uh, federal housing program. So there was now no longer safe, affordable housing for a lot of people. 
This all happened at the same time. And then we had the Mm -hmm. HIV AIDS scourge that came in through intravenous drug use. And all these things created a perfect storm that landed people in the downtown east side. And then Vancouver Uh and and really the province of BC said, okay, we need to contain this. And we need to contain it here. And so even when I first moved to the downtown east side, all the newspapers would, there would be stories that would say, we need to keep the downtown east side in the downtown east side. We don't want it extending to other neighborhoods. So it was a socially created reality. A lot of my friends ended up in the downtown east side because the police or the ambulance brought them there and said, this is where you belong. This is where all the feeding programs are. This is where all this low cost housing, all the shelter is. So you stay here. And then that narrative began to change because now our new addiction in Vancouver isn't so much crystal meth or crack or opioids. That's a huge problem, but it's actually real estate and gentrification. And so people looked at the downtown east side as, well, there's the last area where we can buy up slightly cheaper land and build. So now the narrative is, why do the poor get to live in such a, a great place? So that's, that's part of where poverty comes from. Wow. And that, that you know, two-minute history that you've just given us here so much clarifies and brings to light that complexity uh-huh. that all of those different factors and and I think when somebody goes drives through or walks through the downtown east side they don't see that no. they don't see that history no they see the the inconvenience or their fear or the lack of understanding um one of the things i really appreciate you mentioning Aaron is it's not just one story and yet i really believe that our hearts and minds can be changed because of the stories of individuals. Uh-huh. So I'm wondering if there's any stories that you feel comfortable sharing about individuals who you have experienced within your community or you have interacted with in the downtown east side who've really impacted you on a personal level. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and I'm very, very careful with people's stories. And you, you've you asked that question, I think, very respectfully and very, very carefully. Um, and one of the reasons I'm very I'm careful is because um, we sometimes we have a, a, an idea that we can give people dignity. And, and I think that's very wrongheaded. I, people have dignity and uh-huh. we either recognize it or we don't. And right. so. I, we strive to recognize the dignity of all the people that we interact with and and know and love and all of our neighbors. And one of the ways that we don't recognize dignity, typically, particularly in, in, in a church and in a missionary kind of way, is by almost stealing or using, leveraging people's stories. So I'm extremely careful with people's stories. And I only share stories with the, the deepest and clearest level of authority and, and permission. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so no, I, I really appreciate that. I can share this story because even yesterday, as I was walking these these kids around, we do what we call a beauty walk or a tour of beauty mm. where we walk people around the neighborhood and I just show them all the beautiful people and beautiful places because oh, I love that. in our neighborhood, uh, it's easy to see that which is hard and sorrowful and painful and, and those things are real. But if mm-hmm. you don't see the beauty, then you don't want to fight for it. You just want to wipe it off the map. So I love doing that. And and I always, every time I do it, I bump into people who I know, who I've known for a long time, whose stories I know, but I let them tell the story and I let them mm-hmm. share whatever they're comfortable with sharing. So we, we bumped into a, a friend of ours uh, who is, I've known, this is a 19 year story. 
with this one particular lady wow. uh, who, when we first met her, she had been um, uh, using uh, various types of drugs. At that point, she was primarily uh, using alcohol, but had used um, crack cocaine in the past and was working on the street, was prostituted as a survival sex worker. And this was at a time when, you know, in the 90s and into the 2000s, it was an it still is an extraordinarily dangerous time to be doing that. But there were literally serial killers coming and taking women um, off the streets and oh, killing people yes, in the neighborhood. She knew many of them. So when wow. we first met her, that was her story. And uh, over several years and, and, and with lots of ups and downs and bumps and bruises, um, I'll say now she's a pastor at, in the downtown east side, really a street pastor and uh, working in with her husband in, in various ways, blessing people on the street, uh, working security in front of certain areas. And I asked mm-hmm. her yesterday, because I knew this is what she loves to do. She uh-huh. carries Narcan kits, which is a way to bring people back after yes. they've o- overdosed and really died. Right. Uh-huh. And she loves going into back alleys, into tents and finding people and bringing them back. And I said, how many people have you That's brought incredible. back to life? in the last mm-hmm. four or five years. And she said, 65, 65 people. Oh I mean, my goodness. this is biblical stuff. This is literally, and I've been part of it. It's raising people from Absolutely. the dead. Absolutely. Yes. They really are. They are oh dead my. and she's bringing them back and she's praying and injecting with Narcan and doing compressed chest compressions <laughs> and bringing people back. And this is, this is a woman who was in the, the kind of the genuine depths of what the downtown East side mm-hmm. offers. And uh-huh. is now literally saving people's lives and preaching the gospel on a night-to-night Beautiful. basis out on the streets. And is uh-huh. really remarkable and has blessed us. And she will call me up at any time of the day or night or she'll come and knock on the door and just say, Aaron, I uh-huh. need prayer. I need prayer right now because I'm about so, to go do this thing. But she uh-huh. realizes this is a social reality. This is an economic reality. It's a physical reality, but it's also very much a spiritual reality. And she's always asking for prayer. And I just, I love that reminder. Well, and obviously there's a community and a safe place that you and your wife have developed if people feel comfortable coming to your door and saying, we need prayer. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That speaks to the the open door and the um, the environment that you've created, the relationships that you've created with people. I, I mean, I think so. I would say it's mostly on... The folk who take, they'll come in and take advantage of that, not in a bad way, but they'll actually, if we say, yeah, come over, there are people who go, well, I don't know, I'm not going to. And then there's some who will. And those are our, our long-term friends are the ones who really go, I, I want that. And they will continue to pursue it. So it's really, mm-hmm. they're the ones who have really created that. I, I'm, I question the ability, even of myself and my wife coming in as somewhat outsiders. We've been here 19 years, but Mm-hmm. It's still sometimes can still be perceived as outsiders. I question our mm-hmm. ability to create that on our own. If we didn't have those people of peace in the neighborhood, we would not be able to do that. And so it really has been that, that, you know, there's a, a gentleman, he's downstairs right now in my, my house and he loves to come over and he has the code to our house and he comes over and he'll make himself breakfast and then he'll often just take my dog out for a walk. And my dog is a community dog. My, everybody knows my Uh dog. They're not always sure who's walking them, but, (laughs) but they know, they know this guy and he's like, oh, 
you know, they just assume it's his dog. He goes, nope, not my dog. It's just my friend. But yeah. but he helps to create that level of, of community, really, and beyond the borders of my house. So um, sometimes we can forget that. It's easy to forget because sometimes people can, you know, come at awkward times uh, or I just want to have my coffee in silence in the morning and I don't always mm. get to do that. Uh, but I also have to receive it as a gift that this is what people are offering me. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're describing friendship. Mm-hmm. You're you're not describing ministry in the sense of one side is giving and one side is receiving. You're talking about that mutual transformation of we're all involved in this together yeah. and we're all we're all giving and we're all blessed in receiving. Absolutely. I I I almost I would say completely reject the model of ministry that is one sided. In fact, not almost, I just entirely reject that model. Because it it creates a power dynamic that is incredibly unhealthy for everybody. In fact, just uh, yesterday again, I was talking to the students and I was saying, here's what normally happens when when mission groups or ministry groups or any group comes into the downtown east side. They come in with a van, they open the doors, they set up a table, they have food, and immediately a line forms. Right. And as I was walking around with some of the students, that exact thing happened. And you know, I get everybody, you know, people want to give things and that's, that's, there's a good thing in there of, I want to give, I want to be generous. That's, that's okay. But, but that power dynamic can almost never become friendship. It's, or it's so difficult to move from that thing of, I have, I'm a ministry provider, you're a client to move from that yeah. place to friendship, which is actually our mm-hmm. oh, family, which is actually, I think the goal of the gospel true fellowship, mm-hmm. as it says in 1 John 1, 1 to 5, fellowship with one another, with the Father and the Son, but with each other, that's almost impossible to get to when you start from that's a place wrong. of client and provider. Yeah. No, I agree. We talk about that a lot at Food for the Hungry because yeah. we are not looking at doing for someone else. Yeah. It's about being with. Yeah. And recognizing our own personal poverty. Mm-hmm. And my poverty maybe doesn't look like the person who's living in the downtown east side, but I'm no less impoverished. Uh, absolutely. And that's, that's again, one of the, the complex things about poverty. That, mm-hmm. that even what you said there would, for some people, would be quite an offensive thing. For, some, for someone, mm-hmm. even in the neighborhood here, who's like, well, I don't, I don't have a place to sleep tonight. How are you poor in the same way that I'm poor? And I think we can go, well... There's a there's different levels and different types of impoverishment, which doesn't mean we ignore the socioeconomic realities no. that people are existing in, but we, as you said, we we engage in a mutual blessing, and it requires that humility, exactly. right? Exactly, um, From a posture, a lowly yeah. posture. Is yeah. is uh, yeah? We often talk about it is that the impoverishment is there the vulnerability is different mm-hmm. yeah. at different times. And different. so it's absolutely true. I'm, I'm not living with the vulnerability that some someone else might be. I have to recognize with humility that at the core, I have that place of impoverishment. Yeah. I, am, I have poverty. Absolutely. Sometimes I talk about poverty as a, a lack of options. And... So there can be different types of poverty in that. So again, some of the kids yesterday, they recognized 
that there is a level of, of friendship and community in this neighborhood that they hadn't seen in their own neighborhood. So they could recognize that their own neighborhood, there was, there was sort of a lack of options. They were poor because they didn't know their neighbor's name. They didn't know their neighbor's mm-hmm. drug of choice. They didn't know their neighbor's right. struggle. Whereas down here, people right. do. And so there's a, a wealth there. However, down here, they don't have the options or seemingly don't have the options for, for good housing and shelter and, and so on, whereas these kids do. They're poor and rich in different ways. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's actually really essential. I talk about that a lot in my book around addiction, that we have different levels and different types of addiction. And if you go, mm-hmm. and I have gone to Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, mm-hmm. and if you talk about, well, my addiction is, is actually this. It's not to alcohol or to drugs. It's to this thing. Sometimes people go, well, you know, what are you talking about here? Um, mm-hmm. But there's a reality in our churches, I think, and just in our, in our society to recognize the same thing, the same drive is leading us to different attachments, to different places. And there are different social consequences to different attachments. Absolutely. And, and maybe we need to be careful around the world, the word addiction. Um, yeah. Because it really does need to be something that is destructive and becomes uncontrollable. But that can be in lots of different social environments, lots of different economic environments. And it's very much in our uh-huh. churches. Uh-huh. Well, I've had numerous guests speak to the places of the greatest authenticity among people is often not the church. Yeah. It is the AA groups. It is uh-huh. the people who are living in community in a street environment uh-huh. because there's no masks. There's no facades. This is the real deal. This is what the issues are. Yeah. Um, and yet in churches, we often clean up pretty nicely and we are, uh, perhaps more able to hide some of those things than in other places. I mean, I, I would, yeah, I would push, I would say absolutely. And push even that this, it's probably the place where people hide their things. Um, I've, when I have groups come in, I, I say, how many of you have something in your life, something in your heart, some secret that you don't want to share with anybody? And everybody puts up their hand. These are church groups. And they say, how many people think that every single person who comes to meet on Sunday also has something like that in their heart? (laughs) Yeah, every single person. How many of you would be comfortable sharing that in that environment? Nobody. No hands go up. And I go, is this a good way to live? Is this the freedom that's offered by the gospel? What if every single time anybody wanted to talk in church, they had to begin by saying their name and their primary temptation or falling? What if that was the the culture? And Hmm. and someone said once, I think there'd be a lot more silence in church. I said, that that might not be a bad thing. But that's all 12-step groups. If you want to talk. You got to say, this is my name and this is my stuff. This is my thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. what a level of, and of course that can become really religious too. And, you know, AA and NA uh-huh. groups are not perfect. But, no. But there is a level of, okay, we're all in this together and we're all struggling. That seems yes. absent in most churches for whatever reason. Uh-huh. It feels to me like that's a topic we could talk about for a very long uh, time. We are actually already, surprisingly, it, this has gone so quickly, coming to the end of our um, our episode here. Erin, I'm just wondering, was there anything in particular, anything else that you were hoping to touch on today? Anything else that you'd like to share with, with me and with our audience? 
Um, I mean, the thing that I say when I when I speak to people who aren't in the downtown east side, who who only picture poverty as places like the downtown east side, or hmm. when they when you imagine poverty, it's somewhere overseas or somewhere very distant mm-hmm. and alien to you. I I usually start when I go to churches by saying, "Look, I'm not asking you today to to just open your your table to my friends in the downtown east side. We're already we're doing that." What I'm asking you to do is, could you start opening your table to the people in your own community? Could you start opening the table to someone in your own church? Because mm-hmm. I say, it's very difficult to change your church. It's very mm-hmm. difficult to change your city. It's very difficult to change your whole neighborhood. That's a pretty big idea. And maybe some people have the imagination and the will to do that. But, mm-hmm. but it's actually not that difficult to change your table. You right. can change the way that you eat together. And the way you do that is by starting with people who are in the pew with you. And mm-hmm. the, I think the best way to do that is say, hey, could we go out and and buy some food together? Could we go shopping together and put a meal plan together and then cook together and then sit down and eat together? Could we do that? Mm-hmm. We could, do, could we do that maybe a couple times a month, you know, where you're right. we're sharing some money together. We're sharing some planning together, then we're eating together. And then maybe we'll invite somebody else and mm-hmm. somebody maybe who's not like us. And we'll start to sit around mm-hmm. and, and change our environments together, the, how we eat. Because eating is a biblical thing. It's a, such a biblically yes. intimate thing that we are to do together. And then mm-hmm. sharing our resources together. And I think once we begin doing that, so long as it doesn't become an exclusive thing, um, mm, we will start right. recognizing the the real beauty of the biblical story of how God says, I'm inviting you to my table to eat. Now, would you invite one another to each other's table so that you would eat together? And and if I were to say, how do we end poverty? If I were to give the one single story, I'd probably, if I was forced to at gunpoint, I'd probably say, change the way that you eat at your table and who you invite. Because that will begin mm. to really shift things, I think. Uh-huh. That's beautiful. Thank you. Aaron, I can imagine people listening and saying, I, I want to know more about this guy. Where can they find you? How can listeners track you down? I really don't want listeners to track me down. I, <laughs> I, uh, Perfect. <laughs> it's funny because when I do things like this, um, people then want to become my friends on Instagram. But on Instagram, I just, I just share funny pictures of my dog. Like I don't, I'm not, I'm okay. really not trying to be a social media influencer. I have no desire to do that. Um, if if yeah. people want to know more about the story and some of the biblical ideas that we're working through, mm-hmm. they, I, I have written a book. So I wrote a book to try and stop people from following me on Facebook. Um, Excellent. It's uh, it's called <laughs> Recovering. You mentioned it before, Recovering yeah. uh, from Brokenness and Addiction to Blessedness and Community. It's available mm-hmm. through Baker Academic. You can find it at all places online where you buy books. I try and recommend that people don't purchase it from the uh, the big website that's named after the South American rainforest. Um, sure. Because that's just Which another... Which will go unmentioned. Yeah, it's another form right. of addiction. Yes. Like it's the middle class uh-huh. crack. It really is, especially during right. COVID. So there's other mm. places to buy it. You can order it into the library. I think it's a really... It goes into great depth of the kind of stuff I was talking about here today. So it's called Recovering. Mm-hmm. I recommend it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I would recommend that people check out your podcast as well, Two Wise Fools. It, yeah. I, so 
I like to give a little warning uh, as people <laughs> as people do that. Okay. That I think it's great, I, it, but it's it is silly. So we talk mm-hmm. about really important things, but in a really silly way, and then we talk about Love really it. silly things in a really important way. Uh, but it's it, the whole point is to try and remind people, especially in this time, just during COVID is when we started it, it that it's really mm. good to laugh. And the best thing that we mm-hmm. do is sometimes we just crack each other up so much that we're laughing for minutes at a time and people love that. So, yeah, that's great. Wonderful. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. I appreciate you being candid and honest and just the heart that you have. Um, I am encouraged and I I believe that our audience will be as well. So thank you for being here today and um, hope we can connect again some other time. Thank you so much for having me. To explore what your next step could be or to find out more about FH Canada, start by checking out fhcanada.org slash resources. 